Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter. I'm here with fellow Booktopian and crime devourer Sarah McDilling. <laughs> we are very happy to be in the podcast room with Devil McTinnon. Welcome, Devil. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be back. I really enjoyed that intro. I'm a yeah. devourer of crime. I, <laughs> yes. I'm into it. You are. <laughs> I enjoyed devouring this one. Excellent. Well, that is good to hear. Devla, The Good Turn is your third novel. Yes. Um, there's a number of indicators and Booktopia's pre-sales are a strong one of them that this might be your first book to debut at number one in oh Australia. Oh my God, <laughs> stop it, Ben. I was bad how before does, you said it. How, now does, how does that feel? Terrifying because, uh, oh my God, can you imagine? I think I would literally lose my mind. But now that you've put it into my mind, I would probably think about nothing else. So I have to prepare myself for that not happening and be equally happy with all the other great things that are going on. It's been crazy this time. It just feels different, you know? I mean... Anytime you get a book published is the most extraordinary experience and you know how lucky you are. And then when your book sells really well, that's unbelievably exciting. But this time it just feels different. It feels like, you know, you go out on the road and you go touring and you feel like you're meeting people you know. You feel like you're meeting friends. You're going to bookshops you've been to before. I'm seeing you guys again. You know, it's yeah, not it's scary nice, anymore. Huh? And it's just more fun. You get to have more fun. And I'm going on Instagram and I'm seeing like gorgeous booksellers holding up my book to the camera and stuff like that didn't happen before. And it's just wildly exciting. It feels like people are excited for me. So it's amazing. I think people are excited. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. Sarah and I both um, devoured and devout. Sarah and I both really enjoyed this novel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you didn't eat it. That would be a good idea. <laughs> um, it's a juicy page turner. We see um, Cormac Riley return and uh, his character evolves. Uh, there's stuff in his career, there's stuff in his relationships, um, lots of stuff happens. Um, for readers who've really enjoyed The Ruin and Scholar, um, can you give us the inside scoop? Yes, well, I'd be happy to. Um, for me, the third book really, it starts with Anna Collins at the very beginning. And even though she's not in it a whole lot, she's the heart of the book for me. At the very beginning of the book, her little girl Tilly has stopped speaking and Tilly hasn't actually said a word for about three months. Um, and Anna's brought her to the doctor and the doctor suspects that she's experienced or, or been there for some sort of trauma and he's worried. So he calls in social workers and Anna's afraid that Tilly's going to be taken away. So she decides to run. She takes Tilly, gets in a bus and makes for the west of Ireland. And she ends up in this tiny little fishing village far off on the west coast. Meanwhile, back in Galway, another young girl has been abducted and Peter Fisher and Cormac Riley are frantically trying to find her before it's too late. But weirdly, they're getting no support from police hierarchy, which is the opposite of what you'd expect. They're down to like a little skeleton crew. And under that kind of pressure, Peter makes a fatal mistake. And so um, he's banished to a tiny little fishing village on the far west coast of Ireland. So we've got Anna and Peter in this little village and back in Galway, we've got Cormac trying to get to the bottom of this police corruption for once and for all to find out what's really going on, save himself, save Peter and maybe even the greater good. So that's the good turn. And if I tell you any more, <laughs> it'll be spoilers all over the place. Good. <laughs> Say no more, Sarah. I know. I, I actually, I don't worry because I didn't spoil it to the point that they won't read it. But I was talking about your book to my friend and I was like, oh, I just read this amazing book. Like... And I started doing the spiel and being like, starts off with this. And, and they hadn't read the, the scholar or, um, so I had to do a quick like, and this Synopsis. is Cormac Riley. And so now he's <laughs> in this. And then before I knew it, I'd basically like 
trammeled through half of the plot, but then I stopped and was like, so get to work. <laughs> she works on these for years, Sarah. Yeah, you know, come on, Sarah, give me a chance, give me a chance. I think I, I, think I hooked her, though. I think okay, she's going to read all good. of it. I'm never going to, when you're recommending my book to a friend, you get just a big, big thank you and a round of applause from me. That's awesome. But I think, I mean, for me, and I think a lot of the readers, the real reason that you fall so hard for these books is the characters, the character oh, work that you, you do, um, which I I love Cormac. I, in this one, fell pretty hard for a, the side character. For Peter? Yeah, he really shines in this one. That was... Yeah. Have you always known all of that about him in the previous book? I knew it for a while. I certainly knew it when I was writing The Scholar. And I really, I like that about, like, I need to know a lot about a character before I write him. I spend a lot of time building up their background. I, I handwrite it in notebooks before I come to write a novel. And the reason for that is if I don't do it, I, they feel like a cardboard cutout, you know, mm. something I'm trying to put on the page. If I spend a lot of time building the character beforehand, and I, I'll do stuff like I'll go back and I'll say, you know, when she was seven, she fell off the monkey bars and broke her arm at school. You know, like <gasps> stupid stuff that never is going to appear in any novel. But if I do all of that, by the time I come to write the story, she feels real. She feels like an old friend in the back of my head. So then I know how she will react. I instinctively know how she would respond to a circumstance. If I put her in a scene, it almost writes itself because it's like imagining an old friend. How would this friend respond if somebody said this to them? And you just know it, you know, it feels more natural. So I spend a lot of time with that. But I love that you like the characters because that's what I look for when I read books. Yeah. You know? Like the, the Robert Galbraith books, Cormoran Strike and Robin. Oh, my God, I love Robin Ellicott so much. I just want to hang out with her. You know, yeah. it's like she could be my best friend. And when I finish the book, I'm nearly in tears because I, I want to be I want to be back in that world, you know, hang out more. Yeah. yeah. So it's for me, it's always about the characters when I'm reading. And, and I, I love that you liked mine. So thank you very much. I love them. And but the plot in this one is so elegant as well. Like you really you started off, as you said, with Anna and like, you know, you read a lot of crime books. You're like, this person's in the book for a reason. Yeah. But you don't like the way it all comes together. Again, I'm treading lightly and I'm not going to do any spoilers, but it's just really so well done. Like, oh, my God. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I just really, really enjoyed reading it. <laughs> like, it's it's a funny one with that plot because I think I I do a lot of work on outlining, but this one I kind of got lucky. To tell you the honest truth, I I had a I wasn't a hundred percent sure how I was going to end it, and I had a few different options, and then I was just working away one night, and just a thing popped into my head, and I was like, oh my god, all I have to do is pull this one string, and the whole thing is just going to go whoop. And that doesn't happen very often, so I was very happy when that kind of came together. I and love that was all hearing about that. I love moment, hearing yeah. that because I feel like the reader feels that. I I was so, I have, I've reviewed your book. It's not out in the world yet. And in the review, I was like, "There's always that moment when you're reading a really good crime novel, and you reach a point where you're so driven by curiosity and you're so deep in the story that your brain just goes, how the hell is the author going to wrap all this together? <laughs> and I feel like that's your moment. That's your moment when you found it and like it all just sort of falls into place so well. You have to be um, patient because it's so tempting to push your way through to the end. And, you know, there's so many different ways you can end them. But, you know, you know that feeling where it just feels like someone's just finishing the book. You know, yeah. as you can almost feel the writer just going, oh, I've just got to get to the end. I'm nearly there. You Here's know, your you can feel solution. The, yeah, over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And God, it's tempting. You know, it's tempting to do that because you're tired and and it and you're you found three possible endings. They're all okay, but none of them feels hundred percent. And you're beginning to think you're never going to get there. And maybe one of these will do, and you should just work it. And but then, if you're patient and you give it time, 
the book almost gives you what the ending is, you know, and you just have to let the characters do that for you a little bit. That's magic. I think that's magic. <laughs> I love all the different themes that you bring into the um, work. Uh, there's, um, it's a hard look into the politics of law enforcement. Uh, you focus on these friction points between urban cops and rural cops, um, Interpol and the local force. Um, there's multi-generational police families and the mm. tension inside of that. Um, there's the difficulty of, of institutional corruption and how you even begin to prosecute that mm. um, and how people can get swept up in it. Mm. Uh, and then there's um, just the, the sheer angst and isolation of being a law enforcement officer and having to put on the uniform every day. Mm. You just weave all of that um, into <laughs> so this. So seamlessly <laughs> as well. And you deliver a page-turning plot at the same time. How does that work? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, guys, you're giving me a giant head here. Um, I, think, I think writing comes from the things you're interested in. You know, you come to a story with a lot of opinions, or you do if you're me, and a lot of thoughts, and those things leak through. I mean, you shouldn't, as a writer, you're not supposed to be on the page, but a bit of you ends up there, whether you like it or not. And I'm interested in that kind of stuff. You know, I care about it, and so it ends up there. I mean, look, the police corruption in Ireland, it's not, it's not a surprise to any Irish person that that's being talked about. I did feel in this book that I had maybe pushed it a bit further and to the bound bounds almost of it being unrealistic and then I was halfway through my structural edit and I was reading the Irish Times the Irish newspaper and I had to call my editor because I was saying you are not going to believe this but exactly what happens in the book has just happened in Ireland I can't say what it is because it would be a massive spoiler Saucer. but I was <laughs> like if this is literally the thing that I have had that happens at the very end of the book that you guys will know what I'm talking about happened this year in Ireland I'll tell you about it when we stop recording but, um, <laughs> but it was it was unbelievable. I just couldn't believe that that was ripped from, you know, the headlines sort of. But in a way, it's, it shouldn't be surprising because it was inevitable. You know, you can sort of see this, the, the structural problems there that lead to that kind of thing. I mean, there was there's a funny story that I don't know if I've told here before, but um, it was either last year or the year before the Irish police, so every year they, they um, report their statistics, you know, what we did this year, how many arrests we had in different areas. And one of the things they report on, obviously, is traffic crime. And they said, well, we, we did, I can't remember the exact number, but they said, let's say, we did 750,000 breath tests this year. Well done us. Nice work. 150 up on last year. And then a couple of months later, the manufacturers of the breath test came out and said, well, we only manufactured 400,000. So we're not sure how you did 750,000 tests. <sighs> So they had been vastly over-reporting their breath testing, which was kind of almost, it was funny, you know, when this was, it was such mm. a silly and obvious thing. But when that is happening at that level, mm. there are issues right into the police force. And there was another situation where there was a whistleblower who, you know, much like in Australia, you get points, traffic points for speeding and that sort of thing in Ireland. And if it's quite a serious um, offence, you end up going to court. Um, and a lot of people were getting away without their points because they would know somebody in the Gardaí. So they would pick up the phone and say, can you make sure that Garda O'Shaughnessy does not show up to the district court on Friday? Or can you just erase this from the computer? And this was happening in the early days. And this man came forward and said, look, this is not okay. And he reported it up through the hierarchy, the degree to which this was happening. He wasn't just unhappy about that, though. He was unhappy about some much, you know, much more serious things, um, a murder investigation that hadn't been properly investigated, shortcuts that were taken, mistakes that were made and then covered up. So he came forward as a member of the Gardaí to say, we've got to do better. And he was 
made a target of a campaign to destroy him, essentially. Not just drive him out of the police force, but essentially destroy his life. It went on over years. I mean, I think 10 or 15 years this went on and was only really reported in the in later years. And it went right up through the police force, the pressure that was put in this man. So I think I was very conscious of those things and they formed my th- some of my thinking for what I, I felt mm-hmm. about what was happening within the Garthi. That is not to say that there aren't, you know, the vast majority of Garthi trying to go out and do a really difficult job in really difficult circumstances, which I think is shown very clearly in the books as well. Yeah, in a but profession that's so diminished. So yeah. diminished, under, like grossly underpaid, grossly undervalued, you know, and the danger that they have to deal with every day and the circumstances that the rest of us can't even begin to imagine that. I mean, and some of the trauma that they have to experience. Can yes, you, just, you touch on the trauma, you touch on the austerity of it. It's mm. it's not an easy life. Oh. <laughs> it really isn't. So it's not surprising that some of them go, oh, well, sod it. I'm just going to cheat a bit, you know. But I think I wanted to show both sides. And you did it so well with Peter because you've got him in this role. We're familiar with him as um, Cormac's protege. And we know Cormac to be someone who will calmly and efficiently work against all that corruption, even knowing the risk. So he's showing... He's an example for mm. Peter, but then he's also got his father, who's a different kind of example. And mm. without, again, spoiling, um, the character work that you do with that particular character, putting him in that position and then sort of seeing where the chips fall there is fascinating. It's just fascinating oh, to read. Thank you. Like, so nice. Um, I'm, I just want to applaud. <laughs> <laughs> It could be the rest of the podcast. No. <laughs> that could get awkward, just to be honest. A, a slow clap. <laughs> I think the other thing that we really enjoy reading is the um, inherent Irishness of it. The mm-hmm. um, It's intoxicating Irishness. Um, and it doesn't, to me as a kind of bogan reader, it doesn't appear as <laughs> like kitsch or laboured yeah. or um, over the top. Uh, do you, do you, um, uh, like you, you grew up in Cork and you practiced law in Galway. Yeah, um, I was born in Cork. My dad was a bank manager, which in those days meant you were moved around the country a lot. So I, we moved to Galway when I was 12. And I spent most of my childhood there and university there and went back to work there years later. Do you have to go back to sort of reimmerse yourselves? Or, or, or is it are you like James Joyce? <laughs> 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 Definitely not like James Joyce. Um, I think Ireland is just part of... It's, it's part of my DNA, you know, I think I was, I grew up at such a, you know, a time when Ireland was really quite insular and homogenous in a way, in a way that it isn't today. And it just, the Irishness of it was just embedded in me, you know. Ireland has changed a lot, though. And my sister said something really, you know, interesting to me last year. And she said, just be careful, Derv, that you don't start writing about the Ireland that you left because I've been in Australia for eight years, eight and a half years now, and Ireland has changed a lot even in that time. So while I know it to my bones, do I know the Ireland now? I don't know if I spend enough time there to really stay current. So I have to make an effort to go back more. But it's about, you know, reading the Irish papers, speaking to Irish people and listening to what's being said on the ground and understanding that. The culture and the social interaction, I think I, I know very well. Um, but the rest of it, staying current with politics and, and with the economic situation means keeping yourself informed, you know. Mm. There's um, a fantastic level of Australian readership that you're hitting now. Yeah. Um, how are things going overseas? Um, because, God. yeah, BFFs with Val McDermott. 
Um, <laughs> you've got a, a new international agent who's yeah. the same agent as Don Winslow. There's yeah. um, the jacket direction for the new novel is really gorgeous and really international and slick. Um, <laughs> so poised for world domination. <laughs> yeah, how's world domination going? World domination is looking good. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's been very exciting. Some really exciting things have happened in the past year. I mean, um, Hopscotch had optioned the ruin anyway and they were working on the development of it but then the really exciting news was that Colin Farrell had set up a new production company with his sister Claudine Farrell and they chose the ruin as their first project so they've come on board as producers and Lee Magaday who produced um, The Favourite which was one of my favourite movies last year has also come on board so that's really exciting and they've just started having creative meetings about that so that was cool um, something in the States, I wrote a little um, audio novella, which is a prequel to these books called The Sisters. And that was the best-selling audiobook in the US for four and a half weeks, mm. which was pretty amazing. So I'm excited to see what comes down the line for me. You know, um, the next book is not going to be a Cormac Riley book, I have to tell you. It's going to be something completely <laughs> different. And I think when you read The Good Turn, you'll know why. Because I think where I've left Cormac at the end of that book, he just needs a break. Oh, <laughs> God. Yes, he's been through enough. And I think for me, if I had started writing another Cormac Riley immediately after that, I would have felt like I was writing the same book for you, but just with mm. a different plot on top. I think in he needs to change and grow before I write him again. And I know that sounds really stupid because I recognize that he is actually made up. But <laughs> in my mind, he feels real and he feels... Uh, when I think about him now, I think about him where he is at the end of the good turn. I need to give him time at the back of my mind to change. So when I come back to him, I think it would be a couple of years later. He'll be in a different situation. A lot will have happened. And that all those things that will have happened to him, I will have created, you know, it's yeah. just quietly in the back of my mind. He'll be someone different a little bit. And then I will be able to write something good and fresh with him. So I've had to give him a bit of a break. And um the new book is a story I carried around for a long time. Well, the new, new book. This is next year's book. I don't know why I'm talking about it. I want to hear anyway. everything. What are you allowed to tell us? <laughs> well, it's very early, I guess. But the, the it was a story I was carrying around in my head for a long time, and I just couldn't figure out a way to tell it. Um, and then I had a conversation with someone on the phone, and I hung up the phone and immediately just went, oh, my, oh my God, it all came in. I was like, I just need to flip the idea. Just turn it over, and it said... And then it was the only thing I wanted to write. So I, I started writing that one. So that's a standalone novel and it will be set in the US. Um, so Exciting. it's a little bit different. Yeah. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. It's a very American story. So it had to go there, I'm afraid. Are but we allowed? When it, so this is next year. This book. is next year. Like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm jumping the gun. Let's go. Good turn. It's all about the good turn. The good turn. This new book. <laughs> it's a fantastic book and we've really enjoyed having you here. Thank Let's you. Yes, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The Good Turn is published by HarperCollins. Um, it's available right now along with all of Devil's books uh, from booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget, for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.